You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Amen. Amen. Hey, as you can see from the video a moment ago, we are in the middle of a series. Uh, started a couple weeks ago called You Might Regret That Later. You Might Regret That Later. And we are looking at how we can live better stories with fewer regrets. Better stories with fewer regrets. You know, I hear people say all the time that they've managed to live a life with no regrets. Like, I've got no regrets in life. And I think, who are these people? <laughs> who are you? You must have, ne- A, never been married. <laughs> B, never had kids. Or C, never gone outside your house ever. Because if you go outside your house, you'll meet a human. With whom you might have an interaction. You might have actually a regret. For example, I, I regret accidentally, emphasis on that word, accidentally throwing away the dried rose petals that line the walkway to the altar at our wedding. Because after our ceremony, her cousin kindly gathered the tokens of our love and freeze-dried them and sent, us, sent them to us in Texas in a box uh, full of photos from the day uh, and a note inside. And unfortunately, I was the one who received the box and opened the box. And I saw the pictures and I'm, I saw the note, which I'm sure had the instructions that let me know that the, the mementos from our marriage were also included. But did I read the instructions? Pretty much, I did not. And so into the dumpster went the tokens of our love and out the window went any positive feelings Carrie ever had about me for the next several weeks. So, so when people say they've lived with absolutely no regrets, I'm a little skeptical. I got to admit it. It seems unlikely to me because again, after only two weeks of being married, I already had a pretty big one and you may already have one like that too. Now, I hope not, but it's certainly possible. But really... Really, I think when it comes to our biggest regrets, like the main regrets we have in life, the ones we carry or the ones we create, our biggest regrets have to do, they come down to how we respond to the people around us, how we react to what other people bring or don't bring into our lives. That is to say, our main regrets, not all, but our main regrets are really relational. They're really relational. You know, I think no one, you know, there's no one ever ends up hearing when they're sitting in that office with the counselor or the therapist. No one ever hears, hey, you know, the reason you're here is because all your relationships are like your parents and your siblings and your kids and your friends. They're all super healthy. Like they're all great. No, it's usually because of the opposite that you're there. You're usually there because of some kind of regret that you had because of something that you brought or didn't bring or someone didn't bring into your life. Our main regrets are really relational. They're really relational. And especially right now in our culture, in our national climate, we are seeing, many of you have experienced this, relationships fracture and crack and go away like never before. It is an un unprecedented relational crisis. And part of this, a lot of this, I think, comes from something that might not sound like a big deal initially, but you know in your life, if you've experienced this, it is. What's causing a lot of our relational and cultural fracturing right now is just plain old, here's the word, meanness. Meanness, a lot of meanness. Those mean people, that mean person, those just mean words, it's gotten so bad. Like university departments, research departments are in overdrive studying this. Articles being published about this, so 
let me ask you, how are you doing with this? How's this been affecting you? When you read the news, hear the words, or how about this question? What's the meanest thing someone's ever done to you? Sorry to go there so early in the morning. What's the meanest thing someone's done to you? Can you recall that? How did that make you feel? How'd you handle it? Or, 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 or what's the meanest thing you know you've done to someone else? How do you feel about that? Do you regret that? Now, I was thinking about this and wondering, like, what's the meanest thing someone's ever done to me that I can share publicly? <laughs> it's probably like you. I've, I've got a few stories, but Carrie and I were talking about this, and we think this one's near the top of our, our list, and here it is. You know, when, when we've been, been married about a year or so, we took a part-time kind of ministry job with an organization called Apartment Life, and they're great, and they're right here in Austin, and basically what they do is they place Christian couples or a couple of singles into an apartment complex to basically be uh, the, the lighter Christ there, in other words, to, to be the resident services providers for all the people who live in the apartment complex. Now, it's a lot of work, but you get massively discounted or free rent for doing it, so some of you might want to check it out. But we did it, and overall, we liked it. It was great, but there was this one time... <laughs> Part of what we did was to regularly hand out breakfast at the gate for folks on their way out to work in the morning, you know, shine a little light. And so we'd go shopping for the food the day before, night before, and get you know, all the breakfast bars and the paper bags and the orange juices and the fruit and put them all into hundreds of paper bags right in our little apartment. And so we'd get up the next morning, haul those hundreds of bags of breakfast out by the gate by 6 a.m. to be there. And there we were one morning out in the freezing cold in January standing by the gate trying to make everybody's day a little brighter when she pulled up. She pulled up and she was the over consistent overnight guest of our next door neighbor whom we knew fortunately it was a tough situation. He was married but separated from his wife and it was complicated. It was sticky like the kids would come and the kids would go when the kids weren't there. She would be, it was not great and she had a reputation for condescension and rudeness to the staff of the apartment who would come to us and ask if we could do something about it because like that was our job apparently and then from our neighbors because they had complained about her to the staff. And she was beautiful and super fancy and drove a really nice SUV. And there we were at the gate, standing out there with our, you know, our beanies on and gloves on and all that. And as she rolled up to us, we waved to her breakfast bags in hand, just smiling. And we said to her, you know, trying to make a little headway in the relationship, trying to be a little positive, make a little connection. And we said, hi, we're your CARES team. And she stared at us and said, okay. She rolled down that window and she said that. And she said, we've got breakfast for you if you want it. And she said, why would you do that? Part of our roles here, we said, as the CARES team, your CARES team, we just want to make this place a great place to live. And so we thought that making breakfast for you might brighten your day. It's just part of what we do. <laughs> and she looked at us through the half-cracked window that cold January morning. And she paused and she looked down at us and she said this, and I quote, what a nice little thing for you. Oh, rolled up her window and drove off. What a nice little thing for you. And Karen, we just, we just watched her drive off and we sort of stared at her and we thought, man, that, that felt so mean. Like we were just trying to do something nice and that's what we get in return. So what do you do 
with someone like that, something like that. Listen, I know that is not the biggest deal in the world, but what do you do when people make you feel like that? Like you're just trying to be nice, trying to be kind, and you get the meanness back in return. Like right now you're in customer service or you're on social media or you're working in food service or hospitality, you're in a hospital, medical field, or you're a teacher, or you're in politics, what do you do with all the the meanness right now? Because some of these environments, you felt this, are straight up the mean zone. Like, it's literally where people go in order to be mean. As one parent put it, I saw this in an article from Vail, Arizona, at another contentious parent-teacher meeting, this one parent said this quote, it's my constitutional right to be as mean to you as I want. Now, that, that may be true for Americans, but what about for Christians? Actually, what about this? For Jesus followers. I know it's folks who just come and go from church, but like who say, I am following Jesus Christ of Nazareth and my life is supposed to at least try to look like his. What about for them? What do those people, what do we do with the mean people? Now, I'm not talking about fundamental injustices or overt crimes committed against you or someone else or abusive relationships, although at some level you could kind of sort of lump those folks into this conversation. No, I'm talking about all the, all the shaming, all the calling out, all the public humiliation, all the threats, all the bullying, all the intimidation, all the accusation, all the intentional, willful misunderstanding and lack of caring. Have I made myself clear toward those around us? What do we do with the mean people? Now, I don't know about you, but some of my biggest regrets in life have to do with what I either did or didn't do when that came into my life. Like in other words, I didn't have a plan. I wasn't prepared. But I wanna tell you, we can be. We can do better. We can live better lives with fewer regrets. How? Well, there's a fascinating story from a very famous Bible character you probably all heard of where we see him respond to this incredible meanness from someone that he met. And he responds in this counterintuitive, transformative way. It turns the thing around and we'll see how and why he did that in just a minute. We're talking today about the story in the life of one part of someone named David. You probably heard of David, that David who he had skyrocketed to fame to the whole David and Goliath bit. As a teenager, he had defeated the giant with a stone and that slingshot. And soon after that, after he became Israel's national hero, two things happened to David. Number one, the king of Israel in that day, roughly 1000 B.C., his name is King Saul, initially brought David into his household, a palace, to play the harp and soothe his anxiety. Oh, that's what he said on the surface, but really, it was to do what smart kings do, which was to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Because there had been this report going around that this prophet Samuel had gone rogue and had gone to David's hometown of Bethlehem and anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And so the whole anointing a new king thing, that's a problem for Saul. Because when you're the current king, what do you tend to want most of all? Well, you want your son to be king after you. So if someone else has been anointed the next king by the prophet, that puts your dynasty in jeopardy. 
So first, number one, Saul brings David in closer. But second, number two, Saul's paranoia only grew and grew and grew. And finally, though David had only tried to help and serve and soothe Saul, King Saul now tries to kill David repeatedly. He throws a spear at him, almost pins him to the wall. And David says, I'm putting up a boundary. (laughs) And David goes on the run. And as David is out on the run, he's this future anointed king. Oh, but in exile, he began to gather to him all these disaffected people, all these warriors and soldiers, and their wives and girlfriends and children, and they followed him around. They supported him and sort of watched and waited to see what would happen next with David and with Saul. And as they're out there together in the wilderness, sort of scraping out a life, uh, eking out an existence, they have a remarkable encounter in 1 Samuel chapter 25 with a really, really mean man, like super mean. Who did David meet? Let's meet him ourselves. 1 Samuel 25 verse 2 says this. He was a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel. He was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. So this guy's a rich man. He's got a a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep. And you hear this and you think, God, that sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) That's weird. But listen, people didn't keep their money in banks in that day. They kept them in animals, in livestock. So this man, this is saying, had a big goat account. A goat account, and here he is. He's shearing his sheep. This is important to know because sheep shearing time was the, the big party day, the big festival time of that era where everyone came and they traded cattle and sheep and goods. See, sheep shearing was like the state fair of the ancient Near East. And his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband surly and mean in his dealings, he was a Calebite. Now, I love this. This is so good. This is at least this is funny to me here because he's not just surly and he's not just mean. He's surly and mean. And, but there's a good explanation for it after all, y'all, because he was, after all, a Calebite. Right? <laughs> like he was one of those, you know, Van Arlingtons, like the Von Smiths. You know how those Calebites always are? Like there's a good reason for it. <laughs> See, Nabal is. A mean man with a beautiful wife and a reputation for acting a certain way. But in verse four, while David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men, again, not trying to intimidate him. But he said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household and good health to all that is yours. So David here, from his band of warriors, he sends basically his church youth group, these 10 young men, to bring kind and gracious greetings to Nabal. Good health to you. Good health to all of you and yours, your household, sir. And now here was David's message, and here was David's request. He said, now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they'll tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time. Please, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So Nabal, David's saying, you're about to make a bunch of money when you shear your sheep. Your, your sheep stocks, they're being cashed in. Like your big goat bonus is finally gonna hit. You're gonna be rolling in cash. And by the way, Nabal, I know you've heard about me uh, and my warriors. We, we got a lot, a lot of mouths to feed. We're a pretty tough bunch, but we have never touched your men. We have never threatened your shepherds. We have never taken a single sheep from your abundant flock. In an era of constant threat, Nabal, 
we have been nothing but a blessing for you. Would you mind that out of your big payday, throwing us a bone and doing whatever you can for us? Verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? You know, you know, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Oh, this is an insult. And the first cut, they say, is the deepest. And here's what Nabal is saying. Here's how mean he's being. He's saying, David, oh, you have been a, the rebellious servant. You've been unfaithful to your master. You've broken away from your master. You have abandoned your king. That's who you are. Oh, but that, that wasn't true of David at all, was it? Now, David had been loyal to Saul. He'd been loyal to a terrible master and a, a bad king. David only left because Saul, the master, had attempted to murder David, the servant. See, what Nabal accuses David of was the opposite of David's heart, the furthest thing from the truth. See, Nabal took the very best part of David, his heart, and he twisted it. He took a fact and he warped it. Then Nabal says, verse 11, why should I take my bread and water, the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers, and give it to men coming from who knows where? Oh, you, uh, you say like, you haven't taken advantage of me? Like, you say you've been like my little cares team, David? Hannah, my shepherd's breakfast at the gate. Big deal, what a nice little thing for you. How does David respond when Nabal is surly and mean to him. Verse 12, David's men turned around and they went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. So David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David. Yeah, yeah, David was a warrior. He was a violent man. You can read for yourself. He meted out violence, dispensed it, responded with it. But the writer here actually gives us an incredible clue as to something else going on in David's heart here. Because when it said that David strapped on his own sword as well, come on, whose sword was that? Yeah, it was actually Goliath's old sword. How did David get Goliath's sword? Oh, oh yeah. Goliath's sword was a reminder that David didn't even need a sword to fight his battles. Goliath's sword was a reminder that God always looked out for David. God always defended David. It was the ultimate reminder of the ultimate championship. And this detail is a pause in the passage. It's the moment in the movie where the main character has the opportunity to decide, reconsider his choice and current uh, choice of action. So what will David do when he sees, when he picks up Goliath's sword? Well, instead of considering another way, instead of remembering that God was, had been, will be for him and defend him and provide for him, oh, and by the way, and make him king, David straps it on. David goes to war. Is this what we do? Would people treat us like this? We just strap it on, baby. We go to war. Like when they return our kindness with meanness, when they take a fact about us, twist it to other people in public? Do we, do we stop and consider what God has said in his word to us? That he is our shield, our defender. Come on, Genesis 12, our very great reward, Genesis 15. Oh, no, 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 we, don't, we, don't, we just strap it on. We, we tweet them right back. We DM them right back. You want to fight? Say hello to my little friend. It's called my platform. 
I'm coming at you with 400 of my followers. See how that goes for you. Tina Ball versus Team David, the rich man versus the warrior. They're on a collision course and it's not looking good. Oh, but then something unexpected happens. Actually, someone unexpected happens and she introduces herself into the story and she's got a different heart altogether. Who is it? We know. Nabal's servants go back to Nabal's wife named Abigail and they tell her, oh, this is, this is not looking good. David's men, they've only cared for us, Abigail. They only protected us. They never stole from us. But Nabal, he's, he's insulted David. And now hundreds of David's men are on their way here to wipe us all out and Nabal, your husband, he's being so stubborn, so foolish, so, so mean. No one can talk any sense into him. And so the text says next, I love this, verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She loaded up her taco truck. I'm sorry, that is her donkey, her with meat and wine and bread. And she rode out to meet David with these gifts. She doesn't tell her husband. And as she's on her way to meet David, says this, there were David and his men. Can you see the picture? Descending toward her. She met them. David had just said, had just said, he had just said, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. What's David doing? Oh, David, come on. He is rehearsing, rehearsing the pain remembering the story, rehearsing the insult, having that imaginary conversation. Come on. You know the one you have in your car on the way home, right? Imaginary conversation with the one who's hurt him. David's saying here, for all of my kindness, I only get meanness back. I've only treated him kindly, supported him, helped him. It's no good. I'm done with the kindness. Kindness is for suckers. Goodness is for the naive. And mercy is for the weak. Time to use my power, baby. Show my force and take what is mine. And then it gets worse. Then David, he drags God into it. Verse 22, may God deal with David. Be it ever so severely if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Oh, now David is about to make God an accomplice to his violence. But hey, 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 why not though? Why not drag God into it and just justify it? I mean, like, after all, isn't David the future king? Hmm? Isn't David uh, on God's side and God on David's side? Isn't David one of God's special chosen people? Like, he deserved better, right? So come on, God, let's, let's go kill some humans over an insult. Verse 23. But when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal, my husband. He's just like his name. His name means fool and his folly goes with him. And now you're like, I kind of like this woman. I kind of like her. And she's nothing if not honest. And watch now. Watch how she speaks to David. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. And David's like, he will? He will? Sounds amazing. Because you fight the Lord's battles. And David's like, I do. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. And David's like, it won't? 
even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, David's like, well, finally, something you said I get. And you know how hard it is to live my life with my band on the run here? And she goes on and says, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. And David's like, wait, 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 hey, where's my life? It's like, what, the bass in the, in the basket or the big in the bopper? What, what, the, what, the bundle? This is an interesting phrase here, bound in the bundle. And not have heard this phrase, but I want to tell you, you've seen it in action. Because if you've got a child who puts like all 17 books and crayons and papers in that backpack, if you've got a husband perhaps who just loads up that fanny pack, you got a wife into whose purse goes a thousand things and to find a chapstick with a stick of gum with a set of keys at the bottom is next to impossible. Now you know what bound in the bundle means. It's something hidden so well, packed so tightly, buried so deeply that nothing can get to it. It's something that's safe and hidden and secure. She's saying, David, you don't have to take revenge because you are bound in the bundle of Almighty God. I ask you, is this how you see yourself when someone comes at you? responds to you somehow. Do you remember? Do you remember that somehow, no matter what, you are bound in the bundle of God? David, Abigail says, David, this is you. And David's like, it is? How can I know this? And Abigail then tells David a story, his story actually. She says, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Oh, oh, David, remember what happened to you when you fought the greatest enemy you'll ever have to fight, that guy Goliath? What happened to him? Hmm. God, didn't, didn't God hurl him away from you like from the pocket of a sling? Because that, that's like what you used to fight that battle, David, right? A sling? David's like, yes. Yes, Abigail, you're right. And Abigail finishes like this, verse 30. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him rule over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. You think, David, if you'll remember your story right now, in the heat of the moment, if you'll remember that God loves you, he's for you, you are bound in the bundle of the heart of God, you can drop the sword. You can let go of that offense, and you can live with no regrets. You won't have the staggering burden on your conscience of how you responded when you were insulted. You don't have to be the kind of person who takes revenge, David. You can live a better story with fewer regrets. And what does David do? Verse 35, it says, Then David accepted from her hand what she brought him and said, Go home with peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. In other words, David powers down. He powers down. He lets the insult go. He shows mercy. He releases his enemy right back into the hands of God. So what happens next and last and last? Well, in the story, we read Nabal is actually struck down. He dies by the hand of God for his foolishness, all his treatment of David. And Abigail becomes David's wife, and they all lived happily ever after. Not really. <laughs> but for this moment, this story, yeah, there is a kind. There's a kind of fairy tale ending for Abigail and for David. David remembers his true story. He lets go of the offense and he avoids a massive regret. What about me, huh? What about you? How can we do the same? What story, whose story do we remember to help us? I want to tell you, not in the balls. He's cruel. 
not David's because he's petty. Who shines through here? Well, on one hand, it's Abigail, but it's not just Abigail. Even though she's amazing, there's someone else to whom the beauty of Abigail points. A greater Abigail in the story. The one who many years, centuries later, rode from heaven to intersect us, humanity, on a violent collision course with humanity, with our own instincts and nature and cycles of violence. There's someone who came to us, not lording it over us, but like Abigail, rode to us on a donkey as a servant. If we'll remember the one who came to us, interceded for us, came to remind us our lives are precious to God. We can do the same here. We can remember, oh, like Jesus said, man, if his eye is on the sparrow, how much more is it on yours? We can trust God with our story. Oh, but instead of listening to him, right, we rejected God's intercessor, Jesus Christ, and we put him to death. And yet he was raised back to life, proving, I want you to hear me here, That cruelty and meanness and violence and the love of power don't get the last word. But Jesus and his new kingdom do and they will. And Jesus did all of that. So that when he says, blessed are not the mean, but blessed are the merciful, we would believe him. So that when he says this, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven, that you may be like father, like daughter, like father, like son. He causes his son, because it's his, by the way, to rise on the evil and the good and sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. He cares for both good and bad. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? The answer is none. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Yes. And if you greet, this word means here to salute, literally to respect. Show respect toward only the people just like you. Think like you. Vote like you. What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Yes. So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus suffered, died, and rose again so that when he said this, we would believe him. We would remember his story. We remember that when we trust him, that our lives, our stories, are bound up in the bundle of God. So what, then, what what can you do to apply this? What can you do then with that one who's mean to you, been mean to you, might be mean to you, what do you do? Well, you know what Carrie and I, we've tried to do imperfectly for sure, but what we've tried to do to keep our hearts, here's the word, clean. What we did with that woman at the gate, here's what we did. We took hands and we prayed for her. We prayed for her. Lord, help her. Lord, save her. Lord, use us to help her somehow. And the next time she rolled through the gate, we smiled and served her breakfast again. And years later, when we felt in our lives we had some authority figures like Saul's who were sort of cruel and hunted us, we felt like we prayed for them, blessed them, baked for them, cooked for them, took care of their kids for them. But as much as we did it for them, hear me, we did it for ourselves. And here's why. Because if you and I, if we only get even with our enemies, That's all we are, is even. That just makes us just like them. Is that who we want to become? Do we really want to become just like those who hate us and harm us? Do we want to become mean in return? Do we want that to be our story? Hear me. Do we want that to be the story of the church of Jesus? That yeah, when people persecuted us, we were just mean back. Why? Because we wanted power. 
Do we want to be like our Father in heaven and become people who live with no regret, right? Because we didn't allow the meanness of others in our moment to turn us into that. Church, if we'll see Jesus and his plan, how like Abigail and all her beauty, all her provision, she rode to intersect and intercede with David. If we see Jesus like that, but greater, how he's defeated our greatest enemies and he did this for us, the foolish Nabals, the surly, the mean, we can be transformed. Hear me. Blessed are, come on, you fill in the blank, not the mean, merciful. Why? For they will be shown mercy. Go and learn what this means, Jesus said. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you'll do this, we'll do this. We can live better stories, fewer regrets. If you say amen to that, I'm gonna take a moment and pray for us. Pray for us. We would be like our Father in heaven. Lord, we come to you. We ask for help doing this because apart from your grace and help and a better story than our own, this is impossible. Right now, it feels like the most overwhelming challenge of our lifetime for some of us. And whether we're a teenager in school, those people saying that thing to us, saying that thing about our kids, about our families, about people like us, so hard. But Jesus, you know what it's like. I know this. I believe that. Lord, I just want to choose to believe no matter what. We are all bound in the bundle the heart of Almighty God. Jesus, you came so that we could know this for certain and live and act a different way. Help this to be true of each one of us, of this church, and of the church of Jesus, I pray. Name I pray this. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.